Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name's Shad. I'm a physician and a Harvard MBA and a co-founder of a digital therapeutics startup called Sky Therapeutics. And my name is Alex. I qualified as an MD in Syria before studying an MBA, a computer science PhD, and a master's of bioengineering at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. And now I'm building Sky Therapeutics with Shad. Our guest today is Dr. Anna Gonzalez-Velez. Anna is a Colombian reproductive rights activist and a medical doctor. She's a known international researcher, an advocate, and an expert in the field of sexual and reproductive health, as well as gender equality. She's the founder and active member of La Mesa por la Vida y la Salud de la Mujeres in Colombia, and the team coordinator of the feminist group Mercosur, and the founder and coordinator of the medical group for the right to decide in Colombia. She's the former national director of public health in Colombia, and she was recently honored by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. She has served for more than a decade and a half as a consultant for several international organizations, such as the UN Population Fund for Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency, the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, the World Health Organization, and the Pan American Health Organization, among many others. She holds a master's degree in social health research from the Center for Study on State and Society in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and a PhD in bioethics from the Fear Cruz Foundation in Brazil. She's also a physician, as mentioned, and she is currently a fellow at the Harvard Lead Fellowship for Promoting Women in Global Health. Anna, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to be in this kind kind of podcast, which sounds pretty original for me. Yeah, absolutely. And we've been looking forward to having you on for many months now. And I'm very, very glad that we got a, finally got a chance to chat. Just to start us off, Anna, for those of us in the audience who may not know your story yet, we'd love to put it into perspective for them. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, your childhood years, you know, why you decided to go to medical school in the first place and why you decided to venture off the traditional path? Okay, that's a lot of questions in one, but uh, I was born in Medellin. Um, I'm a member of a family of many women. <laughs> Uh, my grandmother, my mother, my sisters. So um, I think it speaks a lot about who I am. I went to medical school when I when I was really young. Usually uh, in Colombia, we go to to the university at the age of 16, 17. I had 17 at the time. And I decided to study medicine just because I was too young. I, I believe I just thought it was a way to help people. I think that that's the most I had on my head at that time. And I wanted really to do things for others. So uh, I started medicine and um, what can I tell you from those days? I think there's a couple of things that are important from, from that time. Uh, when I was studying, narco-traffic was an issue in Medellin. So I can't even remember when we got uh, graduated, we went to celebrate together with friends and we were stopped by a band of men totally armed uh, and we were terrified in that car. We were uh, talking to ourselves, if they ask us who we are, we are not going to tell them we are doctors because they are going to take us <laughs> They are gonna kidnap us uh, to go with there. We thought they were they were guerrilla, but it it came to be that they were men from Pablo Escobar that were stopping people on the roads. And I'm telling this little story because it tells you a lot about uh, the kind of expectations and the challenges we had at the time as a society. And the other the other thing that I would like to highlight is that when I studied medicine, I was denied part of my learning because I had some teachers that decided that they weren't going to teach us, for example, about contraceptive methods or about abortion. So um, that's 
more or less what happened. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, thank you for sharing that story, Anna. That must have been terrifying. And I know I've had a couple of friends just from various parts of the world. And I'm recalling specifically a friend in Colombia who shared a similar story of when she was on a bus and being kidnapped during that time. Thankfully, she was fine. But this was just you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. And so I can only imagine how scary that must have been. I, I wanted to... Uh, I wasn't kidnapped. I wasn't kidnapped. Just to be clear, we were like stopped in the middle of the of the route and they asked us a couple of questions, but we were all terrified because we thought there were yeah, going no, to absolutely, take us absolutely. Away. I, I did want to ask, you know, you went into medicine when you were very young in your sort of personal life, 17, 18. I can't even imagine. I think I was still playing video games 24-7 when I was 17, 18 years old. Uh, hadn't developed any sort of serious conviction, let alone thinking about helping other people in this sort of professionalized way. But I imagine the first several years in your life you spent in clinical medicine. What eventually made you decide that you wanted to go off the beaten path, do something a little bit beyond the four walls of, of the hospital? What was that spark like? Yes. The first thing is that when I ended my, my career, we had something in Colombia that is a, a compulsory year of service. You have to go to a small town and you have to work for one year. After that, I started to look for work and I got an offer from a hospital, the best hospital in Medellin, which is in fact one of the best hospitals in Latin America. And I got also an offer in Bogota. Uh, from Profamilia, which is the, the largest private NGO providing services in reproductive health. And that was my first decision that, that then changed everything because I thought, well, what, what I'm going to do? I'm going to stay in Medellin or do I want to go to Bogota and open, you know, doors? And then I decided to move to Bogota. Um, and during the first year of my working in Bogota in that in that organization that provides services. In fact, they hired me to provide services in the area of reproductive health. And I was also hired to, to help them to create a program to serve the poorest in the city. Uh, when I got a call from my boss who asked me if I wanted to go to New York because they were looking for young feminist women working in health issues to be part of the process of the Fourth World Conference on Women, which is a United Nations conference that took place in 1994, 1995. So I was totally excited. I had no idea about what the UN uh, did or so ever. I had no, literally no idea. I went there and I started to work um, doing advocacy at the UN. So it happened to me that I got several invitations and one day my boss called me again and she asked me, what do you want to do with your life? Because you've been traveling a lot, doing advocacy. I had also started to do some research and I can't look for, a, replace, no for a replacement every time that you travel because there are patients here that need to be taken care of. What do you want to do? And I really didn't know what, what I did want to do, but I said, I want to continue doing advocacy. So I stopped my clinical practice. Um, I never regret that decision, although I always like to say that I really love clinical work. And I continue being a doctor because if I hadn't studied medicine, maybe many of the things that I've been able to do never happened. But that was exactly what happened. I, I was looked because it was a feminist, a young feminist working on health issues. So I like to say that when there is something or an opportunity that appears in your life, you have to decide if you embrace that or not with all the consequences that they then came after that decision. 
Yeah, no, what a wonderful story. It sounds like, Anna, that it was your clinical mentor, your clinical boss, who was perhaps one of the first ones to give you this sort of non-clinical opportunity. Uh, A lot of our guests that we speak with on the podcast say that when eventually a non-clinical opportunity came, they were terrified of telling their clinical mentor because it meant being shunned, Uh, especially, you know, our guests who did clinical medicine in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. I think it's a little bit different right now, especially in hubs like like Boston, San Francisco, New York. But even 20, 30 years ago, I think there was a huge separation, huge demarcation between the clinical and non-clinical realms. So it's lovely that one of your first non-clinical opportunities came you know, from within the clinical let, realm. Let me say something. My boss at the time, she wasn't a medical doctor. She was a lawyer. I see. Okay, I see. Yeah. That makes more sense now. But, but, <laughs> but you said something that really recalled me a story I wanted to share with you about my grandmother, because she always asked me, why did you study medicine if you, if you are not practicing? So maybe later during this conversation, I'm going to tell you what I would answer to her today that I was never able to answer because she died in 2006 and I wasn't that clear as I am today to tell her why I did study medicine, although I I didn't practice anymore. Yeah, no, absolutely. And looking forward to you sharing that anecdote. You know, I was in clinical medicine just a few years ago, and then I went to business school in Boston at Harvard. And then now I'm doing a startup and the startup involves creating brain training games for a variety of different disorders. It's in the digital therapeutic space. And so my mom always jokes around, like you spent, you know, seven, eight years studying clinical medicine, and now you're making video games. It's like back to square one when I was 16, 17 years old again. And so it was a, it was an interesting transition for her, but now they're very supportive. I did want to chat about some of your amazing, amazing advocacy work. And I sort of went into a TikTok and uh, Instagram rabbit hole, just like looking into all of the different videos that you and your organizations had posted over the years. I wanted to start uh, by speaking about one of the many causes that you are involved in and have been involved in, perhaps none more important to you than women's reproductive rights. And the Causa Gusta movement won reproductive rights in Colombia in 2022 as the country legalized abortion in the first 24 weeks of pregnancy. And as I understand, the movement galvanized women across Colombia to wear green handkerchiefs, which became symbolic across the region for support to abortion access. Could you walk us through what the last several years in Colombia have been like in terms of the state of reproductive rights in Colombia before the movement, how the movement started and gained momentum, and what challenges and successes there have been and what the future of the movement in your estimation looks like? Oh my God, these are the questions that involve like 20 questions each. But um, I'm, I think I'm going to focus on abortion, although I'm going to give you a very briefly like uh, context information. Um, in Colombia, the first national policy on reproductive health was released in 2003 when I was national director of public health for my country. It was the first national policy, like comprehensive policy. Um, aim to deal with reproductive and sexual rights and health issues. But at that time, abortion was totally banned. It, and it was banned at, totally up to two, 2006 when Women's Link, a feminist organization globally known, filed a claim at the Constitutional Court and the court decided to decriminalize abortion under three circumstances. To, they allowed abortion in cases of rape, I'm, I'm kind of summarizing, in cases of fetal malformation and to protect women's life and health or health. So when your life is at risk or your, your health is at risk and those things are not the same. So the other maybe fact that is important for this conversation is that uh, together with some friends, when I was working in Pro Familia, that first organization that I worked in 1994, we founded La Mesa, Por la Vida y la Salud de las Mujeres, which is a feminist kind of NGO um, where many organizations and women work together to uh, we fight since 1997, 1998 to decriminalize abortion in Colombia. 
So in 2006, when abortion was first decriminalized under three circumstances, we in La Mesa decided that we wanted to fight for the implementation of that decision. And I think that that was a pretty, pretty um, clever decision we made without even knowing the consequences of that because we worked hardly to disseminate the information on that decision. And we built a series of books and things to help doctors to apply and implement the indications or exceptions or legal grounds for abortion regime that's known legally we we say in the abortion field that there are different regimes that allow abortion one of those regimes is the indications or exceptions or legal grounds for abortion regime and that that was very important because when you tell to a doctor um that a woman can have an abortion if her health is at risk you are saying a lot of things you are saying basically to that doctor that he is is able to interpret if the circumstances for that particular woman uh, fixes or matches the indication. So we developed um, an in, a framework to help doctors and other authorities to interpret those indications widely. And that's how, through our work, um, legal abortion due to or under the indication that is called the health indication, became the first legal cause to access legal abortion in Colombia. But through that work, we were able to identify barriers. Women were highly experiencing highly barriers when they tried to access safe and legal abortion services. Um, so we started to discuss about these barriers and we realized after maybe one decade, something 12 years after that, that that regime had failed because less than 10% of women were accessing legal abortions, although we had that three circumstances, that women were prosecuted. Uh, we found it that um, through the information we got from the general attorney office, that about 400 cases of women 400 women were prosecuted every year due to legal abortion, due to abortion. We don't know what, we had no more information about that. And that women weren't accessing abortion in the same way if they live in Bogota, the capital, than if they live in other cities. So basically I'm saying that we were able, through that work in trying to implement that decision, we identify barriers and we said, this is not working. And the reason it wasn't working is because when the court created that regime, they said at the same time that they established those three indications, they said that abortion was a fundamental human right. And how can you have a fundamental human right only for three circumstances? So it created a lot of confusion because basically the court kept the crime of abortion in the penal code. So they kept the crime of abortion and they decided that women could access under three circumstances. So that all that work led us to the idea of what can we do at this point of the conversation. So we had the legitimacy and the credibility because we had fought publicly to help, you know, the society and the government and many organizations to help them to implement that decision. And we decided that what was in the basis of the barriers was the, was the crime of abortion. And we decided to build on a strategy. And that's how, when we, that's how we started Causa Justa initiative that was born as an initiative of La Mesa and became a movement because many people that we invited to have a conversation around that new initiative, they joined us and... That's how this initiative was transforming a movement that was looking for repealing abortion crime, but also our main objective at the time was to open a conversation around abortion that could discuss why the crime of abortion was unfair, counterproductive, inefficient, discriminatory, and we wanted to open that conversation at too many levels. 
And during that conversation, we found a window of opportunity, and that's why we filed again a legal claim to the Constitutional Court that after 523 days gave us the legal decision that is considered the most progressive legal framework for abortion in any country in Latin America and the Caribbean. It was a long fight uh, that involved not only the legal claim, but also a lot of work in the society in general, through the media, through the social networks, and through pedagogical work, and many other strategies that I don't have time to explain here. So we got that decision, and we are now facing the challenges. The challenges that has to do with the implementation of the legal decision. We need to work uh, with hospitals, with the Ministry of Health, with different authorities, not only to make implementation something real and something that happened, but also to build a policy, an integral, a comprehensive policy that embraces abortion and other reproductive health services. Um, we also face the challenge of protecting the legal decision. You all know what happened in the U.S. last year and how these legal decisions are, are vulnerable, you know, because there are people that is against those decisions and we are working strongly in protecting legally, social and culturally that decision. And we are also facing, in my view, the most important challenge, which is social decriminalization, which means that we need to work so much and so hard to change heads and minds of people so they can accept that abortion is a decision that needs to be taken by women and without the interference of other people. Wow, no, thank you, Anna, for that amazing answer. And thank you for the context and for summarizing two decades of your work and your colleagues' works in, in a few minutes. And I recall that you mentioned that it was a lot of work. And, and I think that can be hard for some of us and those of us sort of in the audience who may not have been involved in that particular movement to sort of imagine that these sorts of social changes take a ton of time. You mentioned that it was decriminalized in 2006, uh, but only in rare cases, and many women were persecuted. There were a lot of geographic barriers. I imagine there may have been a lot of economic disparities as well. Uh, and then there's finally expansion of all those rights in, in, in 2020, and that's 16 years. And I imagine tens of thousands of hours by you, your organizations, and fellow physicians. And it, it's important that you mentioned implementation a couple of times, right? There's the whole strategy and vision portion that can last many, many years. Then there's the sort of acute legal and regulatory framework and the associated win. That's probably when you get all of the press releases and all of the people excited. But then there's the long tail afterwards of uphill implementation. That's even more important because otherwise you're not actually changing people's lives uh, on the ground. Very, very inspiring. And, and thank you so much for sharing that with us. And uh, it's something that we shouldn't take for granted because of what you said happened recently in the U.S. and is happening sometimes all around the world. Chad, may I add something? Because it's been, yes. in my first person experience, it's been 25 years of work. We started La Mesa in 1998 when abortion was totally banned. We did a lot of things that I don't have time here to share with you, that in my view, what happened in 2020 when we launched, launched, launched a Causa Justa movement is the result of a political accumulation of years of working and doing work publicly uh, with others, with authorities, with the society, with the media, and with many other people. So I just wanted to... to yeah, no, absolutely. And and so many people were involved and deserve credit here. I wanted to speak about, you know, you as a physician, and I'm sure a lot of your fellow uh, physician colleagues, clinical colleagues were involved in the last quarter of a century in this fight, and in sort of movements around the world. So what I specifically wanted to discuss was the intersection between physicians and broadly clinicians and advocacy, the role of physicians in sort of shaping broader sociopolitical and cultural norms, especially on topics that 
you know, may not traditionally be considered strictly healthcare related seems to be a point of major contention worldwide. So in the U.S., for example, many clinicians are involved in the gun rights or gun control debate, especially as the number of mass shootings in the U.S. has continued to significantly increase over the last just few years even. It doubled in the, in the last you know, four or five years. Others have become involved in topics ranging from the Black Lives Matter movement, climate change, gender equality, drug legalization, decriminalization of sex work, and many, many, many other important topics. And there's been some disagreements, I would say, as to the extent a physician should get involved in advocating for such topics. So some distinguish between physicians as mere citizens, because individual citizens, most believe, should have the right to express their views in a democratic society, versus physicians as a group representing their medical profession. Do you believe in sort of such distinctions between traditionally healthcare versus non-healthcare topics as it relates to physician involvement? And what about the distinction between physicians as citizens versus physicians as professionals as it relates to policy advocacy? I'm just curious, is there a line? And if so, what is it? And, and how should physicians navigate advocacy in, in 2023? Honestly, I don't think there is a line because I truly believe that first we are citizens as you mentioned, but we are also, when you're a citizen and when you're a doctor and a physician, there is something inherently to your profession that has also to do with the role you play in guaranteeing some type of rights to other citizens. So in our case, is the right to health, which is never the right to health itself, because the right to health depends or is interlinked to other rights, like the right to information, the right to freedom of conscience, the right to um, dignity, to life, to many other uh, rights. So I think that our role is, is critical in, in, I would say, most of the, of the issues that you mentioned. But I'm going to refer to the issue that I know the, the most, which is uh, reproductive health and rights and gender equality. And I've seen, I would like to say three things that maybe could help others to see how they can play a role here. One thing that has been very critical, important, and without any doubt, um, like central in my professional development has been the ability to establish a conversation between the health field and the law. Because these days, most of what we do in the health field is informed by the law, by the human rights framework, by the law, by the regulations, by the norms. And those regulations, law, and human rights standards cannot be built by lawyers themselves. They need our technical expertise. They, they need our voice to inform the laws those laws, those standards. So that's something that I've been doing. And I've also trained a couple of colleagues, uh, train or mentor or sponsor other colleagues to be able to work in that particular like um, domain where these two fields interlinks pretty much. And I think that that happens also around other issues that you mentioned here. Um, the second thing is to became, you know, public voices. We have credibility in societies. Maybe we've lost a little bit of our credibility these days, but our profession is still pretty much something that our societies values. You know, your mother, my grandmother, and everybody, when you say you are a physician, there is some respect. And that credibility, it's being crucial for the work we've done and the fights we've conducted in Colombia. So in the case of the, of the file that we claimed two years ago at the Constitutional Court, we developed a series of arguments around the freedom of exercising the medical profession as a key piece to be considered to repeal abortion crime, because you don't study medicine to provide services that the society consider are crimes. You know, no one wants to be seen as a criminal. And that's what the, the abortion crime does. That crime is telling the society that if you're a doctor that performs an abortion, you're a criminal. So 
we need to raise our voice to say, this is wrong. There is something wrong here. You can be a doctor that doesn't want to perform an abortion. That's totally fine. That's a different conversation. I don't agree totally with that, but that's a different conversation. But if you want to, if you consider that as part of your moral commitment, your rights, your principles, you have to be able to do it. So raise our voice is the second thing I would mention here. And um, and it helps also to, to, to dilute stigma around some issues in our societies. And the third piece uh, that I would like to highlight here, because there are many other ideas that came to my mind with that uh, very good question, has to do with teaching. I really, truly believe that we need to start teaching different staff at the medical school. I can conceive how we, all we got titles <laughs> as physicians without never discuss what it meant the right to health, you know? What is our role? What, play, what role can we play? Uh, but many other issues, we never discuss issues around discrimination, gender inequalities, and how those things informed our practice and the things we do with patients. So I believe that we have a role to play in all those issues because many of us teach us in, at medical school and we need to start teaching different staff at medical school, not only to give people the opportunity to develop their careers at many different levels, but also because we, we, we do ta that to our patients. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Anna. And just a brief reflection before I, I hand it over to Alex, because I am mindful of time here. I really do believe on your first point that physicians need to be on the table offering their perspective. And, and I think, as we've seen, if physicians don't get involved, then they're going to make decisions without us. And without physician input, I think a big component is lost. And, and I think society Absolutely. suffers for it. And we always, in this podcast, are recurring theme. We have a few recurring themes, but a big recurring theme is how to change medical school curriculum. You know, I always joke around that I learned more about clinical medicine in medical school, but I learned more about healthcare in business school. And that just shouldn't be the case because I took so many different healthcare courses to understand the impact of, you know, healthcare policy. I took a health law class, all of these different things in business school, but none of it, you know, came to me through my traditional clinical medicine training. But this was a fantastic conversation so far, Anna. I know Alex has a few questions on his side, so I'll hand it over to him and excited to keep the conversation going. Alex. Great. Thanks, Chad. And uh, thank you, Anna. I'm, I'm really enjoying the conversation. And uh, I wanted to double click on uh, your advocacy experience. So being an advocate on an international level requires building alignment and consensus across stakeholders that have different priorities, incentives, and agendas. And so Anna, I'm curious, in your advocacy work and your tenure with intergovernmental organizations, you know, you collaborated with national networks, stakeholders, organizations in Colombia and other countries. And these different stakeholders have different incentives, different priorities. These different countries have different uh, social norms or regulatory frameworks. And in order to achieve your advocacy agenda and advocacy goal, you need to rally all of those decision makers towards the point of change that you want. And so practically, I'm, I'm very curious to understand kind of your experience and how you went around overcoming those challenges and rallying everyone towards kind of the point of change that you wanted to achieve as an advocate. Wow, I'm loving the, this podcast, although the questions are like, each question is for one podcast. Um, um, so I, I, I'm pre very challenged with that question because you are basically asking about how do we strategize to do our work? I've done work at the national level in some countries, but I've done a lot of work at the regional level where all the governments came in together to a conversation, for example, to agree around certain issues on gender equality that then become consensus that are intergovernmental consensus. And those consensus never happened without the presence and the influence of the civil society organizations. So I've been in, in both sides because I've been as a government in 
those conversations as part of the government, but as part of the civil society, we've done a lot of things. Maybe I can give you some ideas uh, and then we can continue the conversation around this. Um, one of the things that I've learned is that every conversation needs space. And what I mean by a space is that you need to create consciously and deliberately um, spaces to make people or to give people the opportunity to express their differences, their doubts, their 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 um, their concerns around issues that they don't even understand correctly. They don't have the full information. I've seen that most people speaks about things that they don't even know. I have a colleague in Colombia that likes to say that one of the problems around abortion is that most of the population had no, had no clue about the epidemiology of abortion. So there are these ideas that women are going to have abortions where, when they are 40 weeks of pregnancy because they are all crazy, when in reality, most women look for an abortion during the first weeks of pregnancy. And they, they don't have those abortions early because they found barriers to access services or in some cases because they are facing extreme circumstances. But most abortions happen before 12 weeks of pregnancy, basically 93% around the world. But people is is talking always about those women who have abortions later in pregnancy. So when I'm saying giving the spaces that we need, we need to, we have to start difficult conversations, giving people the space to understand what the problem is. And also you have the challenge to put the conversation in your own terms. And I'm speaking here as a civil society member, which means that we have had to develop arguments. We've developed arguments around gender equality and around many issues that I deal with, not only abortion, let's say, for example, policies of care, which is an issue these days. What are we going to do with the unpaid work that women, basically women, are having to have uh, at home, taking care of their older elders, their kids? There, I was listening to, to a listening to a podcast today and the numbers are scaring here in the US people in your age is having to leave work because they have to take care of people at home but the first thing is to open those spaces and then to build the arguments to be able to give people enough arguments to understand problems from many different perspectives and i know that the technical know-how is not always the solution for difficult conversations or for difficult or issues or for adaptive challenges as the challenges I'm dealing with, but they help a lot because you give people the opportunity to see different aspects or dimensions of a problem. And then you have to be very strategic. And when I say strategic, I'm not saying empty words. I'm saying that we've we've been very successful in designing strategies, meaning how are we going to work with governments? What are the kind of information we need to get from them? In order to do advocacy, you have to know who those governments are, who the people is, who's the person that is going to take part in a meeting because there is a government, there is an organization, and then there is a person. And how you can deal with that person a specific conversation. Then you have to strategize with the media. What are the messages you want to communicate? What are the messages you are going to communicate through your social networks uh, with radio, TV, journals, and so on and so on? So I think that basically to be able to work with too many different people, too many different governments has to do with creating spaces, building arguments, and really work on your strategy before you embark yourself or your organization in any kind of advocacy work and be pretty aware that arguments and strategies are things that has to change while the things happened. 
I love that, Anna. It seems like similar to many challenges of, of actually creating a startup. And I know this is on a superficial value, those two are very different, but I think there is a lot of similar underlying challenges and processes. And I love the idea that, that you've touched on towards the end on the alignment of incentives between the different stakeholders and the process of change management, because key decision makers need to be excited about a particular change or a project in order to adopt it because there is the notion that they are taking a risk by accepting this change or by supporting this change. And so there need to be the perception that they're doing something good by taking the risk on supporting a particular change or supporting a particular agenda. And I love the idea that you've touched on of creating spaces for conversation because it is a human bias to create opinions on superficial level of information. For example, as you've mentioned that, you know, there is a population-wide misunderstanding of the issue of abortion. And this misunderstanding is based on a very superficial level of information. And once you actually go deep in, into understanding the issue, you can overcome that misunderstanding. And so... Let me say uh, something, Anna, Alex, very yeah. important here is that I don't sure. think that you are going to transform everyone with arguments or creating spaces. But what I've seen, even in the case of abortion, is that when you open those type of conversations, there is... Half of the population in Colombia, for example, had no real opinion around abortion. You have an extreme that considers 20% women has to go to jail. Then you have like 40% that considers never have to go to jail. And then in the middle, you have most of the population that has not really a position. So you can work with those. Maybe you can transform this, the extremes. So... Uh, the people that is absolutely against because they don't want to lose privileges, they don't want to lose control, they don't want to change. But at the end of the day, even them change a little bit. And what we saw in Colombia is that when we started this idea of we have to repeal abortion crime, most people said, you're crazy. You know, you're crazy, you're asking for everything. And then people started to understand that it wasn't that radical, that the crime of abortion doesn't make any sense. And when people move from agreeing with the indications to the idea of repealing abortion crime, those that were against the indications started to say, well, but we already have this regime. We could maybe leave things as, as they are. So at some point, societies move. No, Anna, that's very interesting. And it seems it's similar to a snowball, right? You start these conversations initially, you create these spaces for discourse, for discussions, you create those arguments, you disseminate them in a way that's easily understandable. And then just the conversation builds on itself until the movement becomes of high enough magnitude to actually change the whole public discord. I'm sure our audience will really kind of enjoy these very kind of practical and hands-on insights from you, Anna, as they think about advocating for different issues they are passionate about. So I'll stay for my next question on the topic of advocacy. So, you know, Anna, many activists advocate for minorities or marginalized communities. So you are advocating for the rights of women who represent half of humanity, half of every society. I understand that it's not about the numbers, but it's more about the power imbalance and about the rights of women being marginalized in communities that do not have the legal and social structures that protect and ensure gender equality. But still, with that in mind, I'm curious to understand are there any particular challenges or opportunities that come with advocacy efforts that are specifically targeted for majority rather than minority groups? I don't know where women are, because as you said, women are majority in many societies or almost half, but then we've been treated as a minority. So I would say that I'm fighting for the rights of a group that has been treated as a minority, although we, are, although we are not. And that conversation gets much more complicated if you think that not every woman is the same. There are indigenous women, there are Afro women, there are young women, there are elder women. So this kind of intersectionality also gives you different challenges among that group that you could consider a majority in, in a society. 
But one of the things I've seen is that you're facing two kinds of losses when you try to transform realities around, I'm, and I'm going to use the word minority, although I'm speaking about a majority of, of group in, in our society. One has to do with the loss, the loss of privilege. So for this society, the way in which things are today for many women, because we've, 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 We, we have made huge progress in the last decades in terms of women's rights recognitions, equality, but there are still a, a lot of gaps everywhere. So no matter if it is payment for work, there is a gap in that payment. No matter if it is the unpaid work at, at house, there is a gap in that field. And no matter if it is around, you know, the freedom to make decisions around your own body, there is a gap, to say the less, because I don't think that's a gap. It's an injustice, is a violation of rights, and, and so on. But there are some people that feel pretty comfortable with that because they are, they, they are accumulating privileges in the society and they don't want to lose those privileges. When you say that we need to raise women in politics, it means in many senses that some men maybe won't be able to exercise the policy, the politics, I'm sorry, in the way they have learned for years, which is this is our world. The public life is for men And now you have women and your people, you have people asking for positions for women, which means that some men won't be able to be in those positions. So the losing of privileges is one of the things that are more difficult and more challenging and sometimes is the source of anger for many young women. So when you look, for example, at the uh, violence against women or rape in schools, in the universities or sexual harassment, and you look at these young women like furious, basically firing everything is because they are not being heard because there is some people that doesn't want to lose their privileges in, in all those spaces, including, unfortunately, um, universities and, and, you know, the academy. And then you also have to deal with how the marginalized group or the minority group has internalized the, the subordination or the marginalization. And I've been asked many times, for example, the, the legal decision in Colombia of abortion last year was made by nine judges. There were four women at court and five men. And we had most of the votes against were for, from women. So people asked, how do you explain this? Well, women also internalized ideas, stereotypes, um, suffering. And they have some ideas about what being a woman means and the meaning that and the meaning that that meaning has for them. So fight against those losses, because when you want to change that, you are losing something, which is certainty. Uh, you have learned in doing things in such way, and now we are asking you to do things in this other way. Those are the most challenging things that we have to face when we are talking about, you know, deep transformations in societies. Yeah, Anna, this is super interesting. And I want to double click on uh, the component of, for example, how in your case, how women have internalized these issues and how you have seen some pushback from women voters against that change. And so, you know, Anna, hope is a very powerful motivator, but what I've seen happen In many countries is if a population lives in a situation for long enough, uh, they lose hope in change. And so it seems that a part of your advocacy work is ensuring that you can change the opinions of the stakeholders that you're advocating for 
and make them believe that change is actually possible and rallying them around that idea. And so I'd love to kind of understand how you think about kind of making the stakeholders that you advocate for believe that change is possible in an environment where they haven't seen that change happen for multiple decades and they've lost hope that it could happen. Well, that, that, that's so difficult. You've been, you need to be very creative. But also, I think that one thing that works very well is um, to remind people that we've, we've got too many changes, for example, around the issue of violence against women or sexual harassment. That is something that I've seen parts of society criticizing young women because they are getting crazy about this. But the, the real thing is that they are not getting the, the attention they deserve and they are not getting the justice. There are cases where the judges uh, come against them instead of coming against the rapist, for example, uh, or the harasser. So I think that one piece that could help is um, to keep um, memories alive in this sense. We, we had a feminist in Latin America that years ago written a piece that said something like, these days you can't divorce because there were feminists. These days you can go to school because there were feminists. So what I'm trying to say is that when you feel so hopeless, you have to remember that we have been able to produce change If you look back, you'll see how many change have changed. We, we can today go to the university. We can go and look the work that we want. We, we can go to the moon. We can drive a truck. But when you are desperate, you tend to forget that what you're facing today and that the challenges you have today sometimes are, are very hard and they take too long, which, which seems as an unfair situation, but you have to look back and recognize that change have happened because there were other doing the same fighting, the same fight you are doing today. I don't know if that's clear, but that's yeah, no, Anna, a little piece. That's very helpful. And it seems that a lot of it is about, you know, creating anchor points for the audience around positive changes that have happened recently and using that to kind of to remind the, the stakeholders and the audience that there is hope for their changes. Anchor is the best word. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. So oh. I, <laughs> absolutely, Anna. So I want to shift gears a little bit here to talk about the Harvard Kennedy School Lead Fellowship. So can you tell us a little bit more about the program and what has driven your decision to join the fellowship at this advanced stage in your career? And what has been the most valuable experiences that you've gained through the fellowship? And do you recommend it for other global health leaders like yourself who may be listening to the, to the podcast? Yeah, um, well, last year after too many things happening in our lives collectively, but also at the individual level, I felt that I was overwhelmed and that I wanted to step back a little bit to reflect on, on all what we did and all what we gained collectively, but also at the personal level. And then this opportunity came through me. I applied, I was selected, and I have to say that it's been a wonderful experience because I've had the time that I needed to reflect, some time to learn, Uh, maybe new ideas, new concepts that helped me to understand what we did using different conceptual frameworks. And, and I have no doubts that all that would, would inform my future um, challenges, leadership challenges in the future. Um, I've learned too many things. I had wonderful mentors here that helped me, gave me their time in thinking together with myself what's next in my professional career. Also extraordinary professors, men and women that gave me, you know, insights, concepts, ideas. Um, but at the very personal level, I think that I let things rest a little bit 
And that's absolutely necessary when you've been like acting or doing a leadership that is, in my case, uh, uh, work that is pretty challenged at the personal level. Sometimes people believe that I'm at risk because I've done a lot of work around abortion. It's not the only thing I work around. I've done a lot of work in many other issues, but abortion came like the most visible. Um, and although I never was threatened, and I hope that won't happen to any of us, uh, it's been pretty overburdened because, you know, it's more than 24-7 hours work uh, in order to be able to keep a movement, doing things together, not to become desperate. So this time gave me the opportunity to look back to that and to take lessons and identify the takes away the takes aways I can you know get to my future work, and I also learned something very personal. I was always pretty much against sharing stories. I thought it was a pretty um, thing that has nothing to do with the Latina way of doing things, and I always thought personal needs to be personal. And I had to recognize that I was convinced here while I was doing this, and I already practiced that, that storytelling is a powerful tool. And, and because of that, I would like to end it what I started to tell you, to tell you, to tell you, told you at the beginning of the conversation around my grandmother. Because when I, I ended my medical career in 92, and a couple of years after I stopped, as we talked here, to practicing medicine. But I never, never uh, abandoned my work in the health field. But my grandmother always asked me, why did you study medicine? And I was too young and she didn't understand why you study medicine if you are not going to practice. And I was too young at that time as to be able to tell her something that today I can clearly explain. We launched a book like one week ago where we tell the story of Causa Justa movement. And someone asked me, why should people read this book? And one of the things that immediately came to my mind is that that book explained very well the, the the sense of my fight as a feminist and as a feminist medical doctor, like the things that driven me to put all the knowledge I accumulated in the health field at the service of a historical change that is expressed in the legal decision that changed the life of many women in Colombia and that is avoiding suffering to many women by giving them back the freedom to make decisions. And that's when I understood that I had a story to tell to my grandmother. That's why I studied medicine. And that's how I use medicine these days. I love that story, Anna. Thank you so much for your leadership and for taking all the risks that are involved in your advocacy work. And Chad and I, we had our MBA reunion a few days ago, and one of our professors, Professor Christina Wallace, gave a talk to the whole class about the importance of taking breaks because work can be really hard. And she used the analogy that the best run manufacturing lines and assembly lines run at 85% capacity. So there's 15% of capacity that's intentionally left for free. And that was kind of one of the takeaways uh, that I took from that lecture. And I share that with you kind of on the topic of taking kind of a break or a step back to reflect for a short while before kind of getting back into the work. Uh, but no, I really enjoyed this conversation. And to finish us off, Anna, how can our audience learn more about your work and follow all the amazing things that you do? Well, thanks for sharing with me that, uh, that you learned from, from your conference. I, I, I exactly felt that way. So I'm pretty, I, I'm very grateful for having had that, this opportunity because it's not an opportunity I, I, I could wish, but never get the opportunity. So I'm pretty grateful and I fully recommended this to everyone who can do it. 
Um, I don't know how you can follow me. I will continue doing the things that are I'm passionate about. And I'm always, I always say that I don't have a plan like exactly for the future, different than follow my passions, my absolute conviction of the needed change that the society needs these days around gender inequalities, which is my main like general issue uh, in health. Um, but I, I'm also in Instagram. I, I'm trying to be active in Instagram. I also do some Twitter. I'm in Wikipedia. I publish uh, a lot, articles, books, uh, some pieces in, uh, in English, most of my work is in Spanish, but you can also learn Spanish and that would be great. And you can also look for this, this scarf, which is the scarf that at some point you mentioned and that became like the symbol for abortion rights basically in, in our region and it's becoming globally because this scarf is a light. So you can identify that there are some people fighting for your rights and that you can make decisions based on your freedom of conscience. Amazing. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you. Thank you both. It was amazing, challenging, and beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. It was lovely having you on. Chad, that was a fantastic conversation with Anna. I really enjoyed it. And my main takeaway was around the, the sentence that she mentioned towards the end. She mentioned that she will continue exercising medicine even though she's not practicing medicine. And that made me think about the role of medical doctors and how we define actually being a medical doctor and practicing medicine. You know, many go into medical school inspired by the idea of helping people. And historically, practicing clinical medicine may have been the most direct way to improve people's health. But today, there are many ways through which MDs can use their clinical acumen and expertise to improve people's lives beyond directly practicing clinical medicine, such as working on healthcare innovations and research to address unmet healthcare needs, for example, creating new therapies or investing in creating healthcare companies that are transforming healthcare delivery or being at the decision-making table and using their clinical and technical knowledge to drive legislative and population-wide changes that improve the lives of millions of patients and citizens. And so, you know, her sentence made me wonder whether that broader definition of the tasks and roles that MDs can play should be considered as part of being a doctor. And I wonder whether, you know, being a doctor and, and doing medicine goes beyond clinical practice. But that's just a question for reflection from my side and uh, over to you. Thank you. And I completely agree. What a fantastic episode filled with many golden nuggets of wisdom. And one aspect I wanted to highlight again and again and again, just because it's something that I think a lot of folks don't realize is the importance of implementation. If you believe in something and you think it's worth fighting for, I think it's reasonable to say that you have to be prepared for the long haul. And, and simplistically, a framework that I sort of derived from our conversation with Anna is that there seems to be, you know, three rough components of the advocacy work. First, there's sort of the strategy, vision, the preparation piece, which can be long and daunting. Then there's the actual acute battle or fight and subsequently, hopefully the victory that can last sometimes a very short period of time, maybe a publicized, you know, legal case, a couple of weeks, couple of months, sometimes it lasts longer. And then there's inevitably, nine out of 10 times, a very, very long road of implementation to realize the potential of that said acute victory. She mentioned, for example, in 2006, in Colombia, abortion was decriminalized, but less than 10% of women had access to it. And there were many disparities that prevented the, the true actualization of that decriminalization. So even though there was a legal and a regulatory framework in practice, a lot actually didn't change. And for some people, nothing changed. And then implementation was the vehicle through which the potential of that recent decriminalization was actually realized. What's interesting is that the strategizing or the vision or the preparation component and the implementation components often happen behind closed doors, away from the media and from all the limelight. 
unlike the battle or the fight portion, which is often broadcasted and advertised to the world. And some quote unquote leaders, you know, are like flies. They love the limelight and they join when there is external attention being pointed at a topic and, and leave when the attention goes away. And, and the reason why Anna is so inspiring to me and to, I imagine, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world is because she has underlying convictions that she truly believes in, and she has spent 25 years working hard to realize them, many years of which was done without any recognition or attention. And that hard work and leadership behind closed doors is what separates pseudo-leaders from truly inspiring people, at least in my opinion. And so I I really enjoyed speaking with Anna today and and learned a lot from her. But that's all we have from today's episode. Uh, For our audience, join us next time for more conversations with amazing physicians like Anna who have ventured off the beaten path and remember to follow us on social media on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube and follow us at POTBP podcast to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, and Amazon music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physicians off the beaten path or visit our website at PODBP podcast. Thank you and see you next week.